Well, if you're new here, we're in the book of Philippians, and today we find ourselves in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 4. And, and what you'll see throughout Scripture, and, and in this book, is Paul is dealing with some tensions. Let me just give you a couple of them. Last week we saw Paul say this. He said, for me to live is Christ. To die, gain. And Paul goes, I don't know which I'll choose, which I would rather. Would I rather be here, continuing to minister, or would I rather be Jesus? He says, I'd rather be with Jesus, but convinced of this, I'll remain here to serve you and to love you well. And in that, we saw that Paul, he's faithful until the Lord will call him home. And that's how we're to be as Christians. You see, the idea of retirement for the Christian doesn't really exist. We may retire from a job or a vocation or a paycheck, but oh, we never retire from the Christian life. In fact, as we grow older, we should be growing in Christ's likeness in maturity and wisdom as the Lord continues to sanctify us throughout our life. And as we get older, though we may be slower, we should have more and more Christ-like character to gift those around us. Also, we saw last week that Paul talked about, hey, there's those who are preaching the true message, but they're doing it with bad motives. And Paul said, I can rejoice that the message goes forth. Well, today we're going to see him speak to the messenger. And he's going to say, hey, while the message trumps the messenger, the messenger does matter. That it's not that the messenger makes no difference. No, our lives and how we live our lives really does matter. And today we're going to have two paragraphs. So we got an easy outline. Two paragraphs, each of them four verses. First paragraph, verse 27 through 30 of chapter 1. Next paragraph, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And we're going to see these ideas. Unity. Paul, what he's done so far in this book is he's introduced himself, he's thanked the church, he's prayed for the church, and he's talked about what's going on in his life. Now, for the first time in this book, we're going to see him exhort the church. To say, church, this is what you're called to. And his exhorting of the Philippians, he's also exhorting us here today. So we're going to get two places where we are to be unified. First paragraph, we're to be unified out there. As we leave this church building... And as we leave the gathered assembly, we are going to go out into a world that is hostile to the gospel. And we need one another. We need to be unified. And he's going to speak of being tough and courageous in the midst of a depraved world. And in the second paragraph, he's going to talk about unity in here. Unity with one another. That, that we're unified church, that, that we work together for the same purposes, and that we are to be compassionate and gentle. You see, Scripture's always had these tensions. In fact, our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden, when sin entered the world, one of the implications for man is that man will typically either head toward passivity, not taking action in areas where he should, especially spiritual matters, or he'll head toward abusiveness. And the gospel takes us to neither place. You see, we're not to be passive as men. No, the gospel takes us to be courageous, to be bold. We're not to be abusive as men. No, the gospel takes us to be humble. You see, there's always these pulls. And today, Paul is going to exhort the Philippians to be unified both here as the gathered church 
and as the scattered church. So let's stand for the reading of our passage today, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through 4, 2. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to look along. If not, we've got it on the screen for you, so you're welcome to look there. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether, you come, so whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving stride by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. For this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from His love, any participation in the Spirit, any affliction and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Lord, your word says the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. Lord, unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken today, so speak, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, actually, today we've got one huge, massive point and Paul starts with it right off the bat in verse 27 as he starts to exhort the church. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That word for only here, some translate that as just one thing. Paul has just one thing for us. And if you forget everything else today, don't forget this one thing. Let your life be worthy of the gospel. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's calling the church in Philippi to do, to live worthy of the gospel. This is if Paul's holding with his finger. Don't miss this one thing. I've got one thing for you, church. Everything else is built upon this. Let your life be lived worthy, church. That's how we're to live. It's a complete, comprehensive point. It's how believers are to live our lives. What does it mean to live worthy of the gospel? You see, we love with a sacrificial biblical love. That's how we love uh, a gospel type of love. We seek justice, a biblical justice for those who've been uh, mistreated. We pursue life. We know that life is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ because without Christ, we are the walking dead. And Jesus gives us life. And we can live in joy. We live in liberty. We live out the gospel in freedom. We are not bound by legalism. No, we live freely and joyfully for the glory of Christ. And we live humbly. The gospel always makes us humble. 
we realize he's God and I'm not. He's the one who should be worshipped, I shouldn't. He's the ultimate authority, I'm not. The gospel makes us humble as we realize our place and God's place. Well, right here he says, let your manner of life. That phrase, let your manner of life, in the Greek, it has this word polis in it. Now, why do I mention that? Well, the word polis meant city. And for a Philippian, they had a special status. They lived in a special city. You see, Philippi was a city that was a Roman colony. Meaning if you lived there, you had full rights of Roman citizenship. You didn't pay taxes. There was a Roman garrison there. You were the highest in Roman culture. Philippi was like a mini Rome. And if you lived in Philippi, you prided yourself that you were from Philippi. You're from a unique city. And here, some translations say, when it says, let your manner of life, some say, uh, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is the idea. You see, he's appealing to the fact that you think your citizenship is special because you're Philippian. No, you have a special citizenship. You do have a very special citizenship. We have a special citizenship. We are citizens of heaven. Once a person trusts Christ, once a person hears that awful news, the worst news that we can ever hear, that in your sin, you are hopeless. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, in and of yourself, you are without hope. Your sin carries the weight of condemnation and death. Your sin has separated you from God and you can't work hard enough. You can't be good enough. You can't do anything enough. You can't be religious enough to do away with your sin. You need someone to come and be a substitute for you. Perfect, holy, righteous substitute in Christ. And once we trust in Christ, Scripture says we are a new creation. We're born again. We're, we're converted. We're a Christian. We're a little Christ. And our citizenship is no longer in this world. You see, the Bible calls Satan the ruler of this world. Oh, Jesus has defeated him, but until he returns, that enemy's running around, and he's going to come and claim it once for all. But you walk outside these church walls, and it doesn't take long to realize that our world is broken and impacted by sin. But you and I, Christian, brothers and sisters in Christ, this isn't our home. This isn't our kingdom. We live in the kingdom of heaven. That's where we're to go. And the kingdom of heaven is this already not yet kingdom. It's already here on earth because we, the church, live by kingdom standards. But it's not here yet and it's full until Jesus Christ returns. And he's reminding the church here in Philippi that you have a different kingdom. You're not primarily Philippian. No. You're part of the kingdom of heaven. And brothers and sisters, though we come from many nations... Though we have different backgrounds, our citizenship is not based on our nationality. Our citizenship is based on heaven. That's where our citizenship is. And he's exhorting them to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live a life worthy of the citizenship that was bought for you. You see, as a church, we're an outpost of the kingdom of heaven. It's like we're to be a little taste of heaven right here in the church. Oh, we're not perfect. 
We're sinful people, but when people enter these walls, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, I pray that you taste a little bit of heaven as God's people worship together and love one another. That's be the experience. Now, because of sin and brokenness, we don't always taste that. And oftentimes we don't taste it not because of sin and brokenness of other people, but we've got to look to ourselves. A lot of times it's our sin that's keeping us from tasting the kingdom of heaven as we gather in church. It's usually not those around you. It's yours. So if you come and you worship and you're wondering, why don't I taste and experience the joy of the risen Lord? I'd say look no further than the person in the mirror. And let the Scriptures be a mirror to you and reveal to you areas where God is still sanctifying and making you holy. And He calls the church to live worthy. And listen to what He says. He says, I hear some of you are standing firm in one spirit. Paul says, you're standing firm in one spirit. That word for standing firm, it has a military word in it. It has the word for a soldier built into it. It's as if a soldier standing firm, he's in the military. There's a war going on, and he's at war, and he's got to stand firm against the war. But he needs other soldiers. And brothers and sisters, as soon as you leave here today, you're going to enter into a war zone. Don't deceive yourself and think this world is in a war zone. Sin abounds. This world is full of warfare and the enemy wants to destroy you. He wants to distract you. He wants you to think that there's no war going on so that you become numb to sin, the sin in your life, and it's no big deal. No, that sin in your life is destroying you. That sin in your life is keeping you from tasting the joy of the Lord. You see, I tell you this, so that you taste freedom in Christ. Sometimes people don't like talking about sin. No one likes thinking and talking about their own sin. Sometimes we think, why do they talk about sin so much? Because our sin is keeping us in bondage to the enemy. No, we don't, we've been set free by Christ and we want to walk in that freedom. And the way we do it is by going to war. War with the sin that seeks to entangle us and destroy us. We fight against it. We rail against it like a soldier going to battle. Brothers and sisters, don't think we're not at war. But he says, standing side by side in the faith. That means you need other people. As you walk out these doors, there's a world that doesn't care what you believe. They don't like you. They don't like Christians. That happens all over the place. And we stand firm. You need other people. You need one another. He gives another analogy. He says, uh, staying firm in faith with one mind. So there's a unity here. Amongst us, we have one mind, one spirit. One mind, one spirit, striving side by side. That word striving side by side in the Greek has the word athleo in it, meaning athletics. It's like an athlete going with his team to battle another team, to contend. And why do we do this? Because the prize is worth it. Why does a soldier fight? Because the kingdom's worth it. Why does an athlete go and uh, compete and discipline himself and train? Because the prize is worth it. You see, this is how we're to live. Live in a manner worthy. He's not saying it's going to be easy. We need one another. Stand firm. Strive. Because in this world, the world wants your destruction. 
To think otherwise is to be deceived by the enemy. The world wants to take the believer down. So how do we live worthy of the gospel? Standing firm like a soldier. How do we live worthy of the gospel? Striving side by side like an athlete. How do we live uh, worthy of the gospel? Unified with brothers and sisters in Christ. One spirit, one mind, striving side by side. Christian, you need one another. Don't deceive yourself and think your face all about you and Jesus. That's part of it. But you need other Christians. God's made it that way. That's why the church gathers. We need one another. Now here, in verse 28, he says, and not frightened by anything by your opponents. Here he says, how do we do this? How do we love the gospel? Don't be afraid. Where I come from, we'd say, don't be a chicken. Don't be scared. Yet, I tell you, fear abounds out there in the world and many Christians are crushed by fear. I'll tell you where I come from in the West. Fear has infected the church and is crippling the church. Many are running in fear. You see, in the West, the very foundation of the truth of God is being attacked like never before. You see, Scripture says God made us male and female. That's the first thing that God made. God said it is very good when He made man and woman. Gloriously good. The only thing God said was very good when He created was male and female. Yet the culture in the West is greatly attacking the very notion of male and female. God made us man. God made us woman. And that's a glorious thing. And that's how we're to live. It's a beautiful thing. The most freeing thing we can do is live free from sin. Yet many are saying freedom is living in sin. It's flipping it upside down. The most loving thing we can do is tell somebody, don't head towards sin. It'll ruin you. It'll wreck you. God has made you a man. God has made you a woman. Sin wants to deceive. Live that way. And the very first institution God created, the very first thing in Scripture that God made to give to man as a gift was marriage. It's glorious and it's beautiful, but it's not perfect because of sin. Oh, but the enemy wants to destroy marriage. And he wants to say marriage isn't between a man and a woman. That's clearly what Scripture teaches. Marriage is between a man and a woman. That's how God made it. Yet in the West, the church is feeling the pressure to say society says otherwise. Won't the church agree? And I tell you, it doesn't matter what I think or believe. It matters what does the Lord say. And I'll tell you, the most loving thing you can do. See, the world will call this hate. Where I come from, much of what I'm saying would maybe even be considered hate. Oh, but I tell you, it's love. For someone to be living in bondage and slavery, deceived of how God created them, God made us man, God made us woman, that's glorious, and God made man and woman for marriage. Marriage between one man and one woman, that's how God has made it. But see, in our day and time, we're going to have to go out and stand in the face of a culture that's going to call us all sorts of names, that's going to put pressure on us. And let me tell you, I thank the church in Africa because the church in Africa is standing on Scripture so much tighter than the church in the West. The church in the West is beginning to run and hide and be scared. Fear. 
In fact, the second largest denomination in the United States had a historic vote a year and a half ago, the Methodist Church. And the vote was, will we say marriage is between a man and a woman? Or will we say marriage is between whoever you want it to be, between a man and a woman, between same-sex people? We can say it's whoever. And if it was left to the church in the United States, the Methodist Church, they would have caved to biblical authority. Oh, but thank God for the church in Africa. Thank God for the Methodist Church in Africa. You see, the Methodist Church in Africa, they had a vote as well, and the second largest contingency of Methodists in the world are in the con on the continent of Africa, and they're the ones who stood. I want to read a quote to you from a bishop in Liberia. His name is Bishop Jerry Kalua. I'm not going to read the entire quote. You can read it if you want to and look it up later. But he was speaking to the vote to say, will marriage between, be between one man and one woman? And I know some of you here are going, I can't believe this is actually happening in the church world. It is. It is. And we've got to be ready to stand on the truth of God's word in love and compassion. Listen to what this bishop said. We know no compelling argument for forsaking our church's understanding of Scripture and the teaching of the church universal. And then please hear me when I say as graciously as I can, we Africans are not children in need of Western enlightenment when it comes to the church's sexual ethics. We do not need to hear a progressive U.S. bishop lecture us about our need to grow up. Unfortunately, some United Methodists in the United States have the, very, have the faulty assumption that all Africans are concerned about is U.S. financial support. Well, I'm sure being sinners like all of you, some Africans are fixated on money. But with all due respect, a fixation on money seems to be more of an American problem than an African one. We get by on far less than most Americans do. We know how to do it. I'm not so sure you do. So if anyone is so naive or condescending as to think we'd sell our birthright in Christ Jesus for American dollars, they simply do not know us. We are seriously joyful in following Jesus Christ and God's holy word to us in the Bible. And in truth, we think many people in the U.S. and parts of Europe could learn a great deal from us. Oh, this man was bold. He stood in the face of opposition. And in fact, the church held to the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. But church, let me tell you, it's coming. There's going to be more and more uh, stands that we have to take as believers. We have to be courageous, yet compassionate and loving. We love people. When we see people deceived by sin, we're not looking to be cruel to them. We're not looking to hate them. We want to lovingly tell them, you're headed the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. Turn to Jesus. Turn back to Christ. Amen. Don't run towards sin. Look at what he says next. He says, don't be frightened by your opponents. He says, listen, this, this is verse 28, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that is from God. When we stand firm in the gospel and on the truth of God's word, it's a sign that we've been redeemed. When you're willing to face opposition, when people would say, your love is hate, when people will say, you're being cruel, and you're saying, no, God's the one who made us. We don't get to decide. He's the creator. 
And the Creator knows what He's made us to do. We're just messed up by sin. Be free of your sin and run to Jesus. He says it's a sign of destruction to those who are going the wrong way. You see, our lives and the places where you serve out in this world, and many of you serve in tough places, the testimony of your life and the worthiness of Jesus Christ in your life is a sign that you are redeemed. And to those who don't know the Lord, they see you and it's a sign that they're headed the wrong way. Turn around. Go to Jesus. They're going the wrong direction. In verse 29, he says, For it's been granted... Let me just tell you, I don't like verse 29. If I could edit Scripture, sometimes I would. But I'm not God. My opinion matters very little. It's what God's Word says. If anything I've said today you disagree with, I would say take it up with the Word of God. Wrestle with God's Word. What does this Word say? All I'm giving you is what, the truth of God's Word. And I believe that's the most loving thing I can do for you, church, is to give you His Word. Amen. So if you're wrestling... Maybe some of you, especially here today from Western context, maybe you felt the pressure that I've talked about. Oh, wrestle with God's Word and stand firm. Stand firm in love and kindness. Listen to verse 29 again. This is a hard one for me. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of the Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It says it's been granted. That means it's a gift. God gives you a gift. Here's the gift. You can believe in Jesus Christ. Isn't that a glorious gift? Amen. There's also the gift as a Christian you get of suffering. Wow. I don't want that gift. I don't want to suffer. I'll do all I can to avoid suffering. I don't want the gift of suffering. But God says, here it is. It's a gift to suffer. That's not how I look at suffering. I usually go, how quickly can I get through this? How can I move through suffering? I don't want to suffer, God. And God says, no, in suffering, you draw near to me. In suffering, it's loosening your grip on this world and tightening your grip on Jesus, because that's all you've got. This world's not going to give you what you want. It's going to prove empty and void every time. All you've got is Jesus. So God says, I'm going to give you a gift to loosen you from this world. I'm going to give you a gift where you won't hold on as tightly. And here's the gift. You get to suffer. Oh, I don't want to suffer. But we suffer for the sake of Christ. Amen. For His sake, we're called to suffer. You know, the early disciples, they were arrested and beaten. And listen to their attitude in Acts 541. They've been arrested, beaten, and just released, and it says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The disciples had been beaten for the name of Jesus, and they leave rejoicing. Church, I'll tell you, I'm not there in the sanctification process yet. God's still got work to do on me. First response to suffering is not to rejoice, but it's these disciples. That was their response. And as Christ matures us and grows us, we 
rejoice in our suffering. Oh, many of you here, I know in a room this size, many of you here are in the midst of suffering and your temptation is to go, how quickly can I move through this suffering? How can I remove and alleviate the suffering? And Jesus is going, just cling to me. I'm with you in the midst of it. Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. He's with you in the midst of your suffering. Hold tight to Jesus. And He'll be with you in it. Don't allow your suffering to be wasted because you look for this world to get rid of your suffering. No, allow your suffering to be something that God used to shape you and mold you and sanctify you more like His Son. In verse 30, Paul says, you're engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here I still have. You see, Paul's life is about, he encounters conflict. Christian, don't be surprised by conflict. I don't like conflict. My natural inclination is to avoid it at every turn. Some people like conflict. They like getting on the computer and arguing with people about things and doing all those things. I don't understand it. But listen, as Christians, we don't seek out conflict. We're not trying to conflict over everything. That's not our goal. No, let me tell you, if you live for the gospel and you proclaim the gospel, conflict's coming because the world out there does not want to hear it. So you don't have to go and look for conflict. I think sometimes Christians get bored because they're not really engaged in the battle, so they create fake battles within. And I'm going to go argue with other people about fine points of theology. And, and there's, we, we, we didn't know our theology, but we get caught up in all sorts of things because we're not engaged in the real battle out there. The enemy wants us to be distracted. He wants to disqualify us. He wants to destroy us. And Paul says he's engaged in a battle, engaged in a conflict. So church, don't be surprised at what's going on outside these church walls. We need each other as we step out of here. But now, in these last four verses, he's going to turn and look inward in here, in this room, to us, to the church. He said, church, you be unified as you go out there, stand on the truth, live worthy of the gospel. Church, you be unified with one another. Here's what he says in verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from His love, any participation in the Spirit, any affliction and sympathy, complete my joy. Here, this word if could be translated since as well. Meaning, since you have encouragement in Christ, since you have comfort from His love, since you have participation in the Spirit, since you have these things, these are what God gives you. God gifts these to you. He gives them to your church. This is how we're to live with each other. And He says here in verse 2, Complete my joy. This is the only imperative in our text today. Now by imperative, basically, that means it carries the weight of a command. Paul is commanding them, complete my joy. How do you do that, church? By loving one another, by being unified. That brings great joy to Paul. Enemy loves to divide the church. Enemy loves for us to be separated over all sorts of different issues. Now, but we are to be unified. He says, complete my joy. Listen to what he says in verse 2. By being of the same mind. We're to have a like-mindedness. How do we have a like mind when we come from different cultures, different backgrounds, different nations? 
Because my opinion matters very little. My mind is set toward this book. My mind is set toward God. God has chosen to speak to us through His Word. This is where my mind tethers back to. And as we all, as all of our minds tether back to the Word of God, we gain an incredible unity. I'll tell you one of the most beautiful things. I've only been here a short time. But I've tasted deep brotherhood, deep fellowship, and deep encouragement because there's a oneness in the body of Christ. See, you can gather with other believers. And though we may have different stories, though we may have different backgrounds, different nationalities, different cultural understandings and cultural hang-ups and cultural beauties, we are one in Christ and we're to have one mind. And he says we're also to have the same love. What was the love of Christ like? It was a sacrificial love. You see, so many in the church want to protect their reputation of being with culture, of being understood, of, of, of being modern, whatever it may be, of being woke. No. We are people who have love and patience and kindness and grace. Our mind's not unified from culture, it's unified from Jesus. We're to be of one accord and one mind. He emphasized that over and over again. We're to be of one mind, church. This is how we complete His joy, being unified. In verse 3, He says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Now listen, last week, remember there was a group of people preaching the gospel. What was their motivation? Rivalry and conceit. And Paul says, I take joy that they're preaching the true gospel. And we're like, really? He's going to take joy in people preaching the gospel, even with bad motives? Yes, he does. But today, he says, hey, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. That's not how the church is to operate. Though some may operate that way, the message can still go forth. That's not what God desires for us. I've been doing this long enough. I know pastors get rivalry and conceit with other pastors. So-and-so's church is doing this or that, and, and there's a rivalry and conceit. No, we rejoice. We rejoice that other churches in our city are proclaiming the gospel. We want to see them advance. We want to see them go forward. We're not against them. We're for the kingdom of God. We're on the same mission. There's not to be rivalry or conceit among churches or brothers in Christ. No, we celebrate. He says, in humility, count others as more significant yourself. I think that is the height of humility. I'm not there yet. To count others more significant than myself? I can say it up here, but for it to come into my heart and mind and live it out, God's still got some sanctifying work to do. And in verse 4, he says, each of you should look not only to your own interest. Do you know we're really good at looking to our own interest? We do a great job of caring for ourselves. He says, but also look to the interest of others. As we mature in Christ's likeness, we begin more and more to look outward at others, to care for others. And as we mature in Christ, we realize to look toward myself and to focus on myself is a sure way to be miserable. So many people struggle because they are so focused on their self. You focus on others, you focus on God, and you're going to taste a joy that you've never tasted before. But you focus on yourself too heavily, you get a pity party going, woe is me, and you're sure to be miserable. The enemy wants you to focus on yourself. 
God says, focus on others. And see, as a church, here's what's supposed to happen. As we focus on others' needs, you feel cared and loved for by others in the church. I feel cared and loved for by others in the church. And that even encourages me to care and love for others more. That's how we're to operate. And Paul's encouraging the church toward this. When we come back to Philippians after Easter, we're going to see Paul give the most powerful example of how we're to, to look toward this. That our example is Jesus Christ. As we seek to live this way, of one mind standing on the Word of God. There was a bishop in the early church. He's known as one of the early church fathers. His name was Athanasius. He's from North Africa. And at the age of 23, he, along with his mentor Alexander, found themselves in an intense bait, ripping through the church, all over the world at that time called the Arian Controversy. And what they were saying is Jesus isn't fully God. Jesus isn't fully man. And at the age of 23, this brilliant godly man named Athanasius, he would write of the deity of Christ. He would write of the things that we sang earlier. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. Those things he stood on. And at age 30, when his mentor Alexander died, he became the bishop of all of North Africa. Rome did not like his stand of Christ alone. They removed him five times from his post. In 45 years of serving as bishop of North Africa, Athanasius was kicked out five times. But guess what? When the Roman church kicked him out, or the Roman government kicked him out, they put another man in his place. And the church of North Africa said, Athanasius is our bishop. We won't take this person who doesn't hold to God's word. Every time rejected. Athanasius spent more than a third of his ministry in exile. He trained, discipled the next generation. Our wonderful, glorious creeds, the Nicene's Creed, the Apostles' Creed, he was on the councils that wrote those creeds because back then, not everybody had a Bible in their hand. So how do you know what you believe? You memorize a creed. And he stood firm in the face of opposition. And for 45 years, from age 30 to 75, till he died, he served as bishop of all of North Africa and Alexandria, faithfully serving. They called him Athanasius against the world because so much of the church was buying into false belief. Friends, I want you to know, when you look at the demographics of what's happening in the body of Christ today, many are abandoning the truth but the church is growing here in Africa. All the demographics say that this is where the church will continue to grow. Oh, may we be a strong church. May we be a robust church because God is going to use the church moving in Africa and Jesus Christ to impact the entire world. I can think of no more strategic place to be than strengthening the church here. Because let me tell you, so many in the church around the world are caving and Athanasius stood.
in the face of that. And I pray we would too. Listen to what Athanasius said. He said, we will out rejoice our adversaries. Christians, we're not to be mean, harsh people. We're to be kind, humble. But we're to have a serious joy in Jesus Christ. Do you out rejoice those in the world? When they see you, they see a joy that they go, how do you get that joy? That joy comes from Jesus Christ and loving others. May we be seriously joyful people. This book is all about joy, that our joy is in Christ. And may we find our joy firmly, securely in Jesus Christ. Church, I implore you and encourage you to find your joy in Jesus. And I encourage you with just one thing. Walk away with just one thing today. And that's this. Live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? In unity, both outside and inside. How do we do it? Standing firm in our faith. How do we do it? Striving together. You need other people. How do we do it? Even as we suffer. How do we do it? Doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. How do we do it? In humility. Considering others better than yourself. May we be joyful in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray, church. God, I thank you for your word. Your word is true. And Lord, I'm a sinful, fallen man. And my opinions matter little. But your word has eternal weight. Your word is the, one of the things that's eternal. Lord, we only have access to two things eternal in this world, and that's your word and the souls of man. May we take those seriously. And Lord, I pray that you'd forgive me. And I pray that if there's anything I've said that's not your truth, or was not said in a compassionate, loving manner, or not received that way, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work. Lord, we need you. But Lord, I pray that where your Spirit's working, if there are those here who are caught in sin, may they realize that their sin is bondage, it's slavery, and they can't taste the joy you have for them as long as they're caught in sin. So free us. You've already freed us from the bondage of sin through your death, burial, and resurrection, but now free us to live like that. May we live more and more fully in light of who we are. Lord, I know there's many here today who, though they trust you, we live more like we trust this world. Lord, free us. We don't want suffering, but we know it's coming. And Lord, if there's any here today who've never been redeemed, they've never trusted in Jesus in the blood of the Lamb, may today be the day of salvation by your power. Lord, we love you and we thank you that you speak to us through your word so clearly. And we pray all this in the glorious name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.